You want to go ahead? You want to go ahead and take this? Okay, thanks. All right. I'm live. So anyway, we've been doing a series through Philippians, and I kind of got stuck here in Philippians 3.20. Um, so let's go ahead and read there. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, and we're going to read through 4.1. And then I'll tell you why I got stuck here. Paul writes, Their minds are on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. First of all, as uh, Paul so often loves to do in his letters, he loves to give us comparisons and contrast. And in this case, it's between people who have their minds set on earthly things and those who have their minds set on heavenly things. He exhorts the Christians in Philippi to be the latter kind of people as he reveals three precious promises in regard to our future. Promises that are meant to inspire, to encourage, and create a strong desire and longing in our hearts for what is to come. Promises that are meant to radically change how we choose to live for Christ in this world. Paul is saying that if you really grab hold of these truths, they will change who you are, how you see yourself, how you face your trials, and how you choose to live everyday life. And it's important to remember that Paul's writing this from prison. Right now he is in, under house arrest. He's quite often chained to a Roman guard. And he's very uncertain of his future. Uh, there's an imminent chance that uh, he is going to lose his life for his faith. The three future promises are, number one, the promise of heaven for all who believe in Christ. Number two, the promise that Christ will return to redeem, reconcile, renew, and restore all things, and the promise that all believers in Christ will be clothed with new, glorious, resurrected bodies fit for heaven. I believe one of the keys to unlocking the mysteries of Christ's return and our life in heaven is to understand that the Bible, even though it's made up of 66 different books, has a story that runs from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, and it's God's story of redemption and restoration, a story that reveals His heart for you and I. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how God's story began, and Revelation 20 and 21 tells us how God's story of redemption will conclude. The Bible represents three errors of mankind on earth that reveals God's story from beginning to end. It's a story of redemption and restoration. And the first era represented in Genesis 1 and 2, God's story begins with his creation. And in creation, it began with a perfect humanity on a perfect earth, living in the presence of a perfect God. The first line of the story reads, In the beginning God, the self-existing, self-sustaining God, the one with no beginning and no end, chose to create human beings of whom he wanted to be in a love relationship with. And he placed them on a perfect planet designed just for them. And, and scientists now have found that there are over 200 different various conditions that are necessary for human life on earth. Isn't that crazy? There has to be 200 things that are in place all at the same time for human beings to be able to exist on this planet. If that doesn't point to God's designing this planet, I don't know what does. Man was set to reign with God on earth was given dominion authority by God with intended stewardship on the earth. And there was only one prohibition that God gave. 
Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you shall surely die. Men and women have everything they could possibly need to thrive. They had all their spiritual, all their emotional, all their material, all their physical and relational needs were met by God. God's presence was with them. There was no need for them to doubt or mistrust God. His love and goodness was evident everywhere they could look. That leads us to the second error, which is Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. Almost the rest of the scriptures fit in this era. It's the era that we live in right now. And because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, all humanity inherited their sinful nature. Sin, evil, wickedness, pain and suffering, disappointment, and loss became life's reality. The earth is now under a curse. Forces are at work to frustrate and thwart humanity. The creation itself is marred by decay and disease and death. Humanity is cut off from the tree of life and exiled from the garden. Their spiritual death, their separation and estrangement from God and redeemed man's reign on earth is now disputed with God, Satan, and fallen mankind. Man is subjected to temptation, troubles, and trials. His dominion on earth is thwarted and frustrated. All of life experience is difficult and twisted and frustrated, and that includes the planet itself. But then we see in Genesis 3.15 where God doesn't turn his back on humanity. He doesn't turn his back on those who rebelled and disobeyed. Even though they had everything provided, even though his love was so evident, he still didn't turn his back because in Genesis 3.15 it says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. As right there, he promised that a future Messiah would come and make all things right. He would restore everything and reconcile everything back to God's original intentions. That promise is partially fulfilled and Jesus' first coming as our suffering servant Messiah, but is completely fulfilled in his second coming as conquering king Messiah. It is in this that we have hope for a better day. Cause me to think of Ecclesiastes 3.11 where Solomon says, He has placed eternity in the hearts of men. What he's trying to say here is that actually within all of us that we're homesick for Eden. We're nostalgic that what is implanted in our hearts, we long for what the first man and woman enjoyed. A perfect and beautiful earth with free and untainted relationships with God and one another, with the animals and even our environment. Every attempt at human progress has been an attempt to overcome what was lost in the fall. That's why you see even non-Christians, unbelievers, who are trying to do things to try to create what they think can be a utopia on earth, but it's not possible. That will not occur until Jesus Christ returns. He's the one who sets everything right. He's the one who redeems all things. He's the one who restores all things. We long for a return to paradise, a perfect world without the corruption of sin where God walks with us and talks with us in the cool of the day. That leads us to the third era, Revelation 20 and 21. Christ returns as he promised he would. And in Acts 3.21 it says, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. You see, the purpose of Jesus' second coming, as I said, is to restore all things to God's original intentions for creation. Jesus completes the defeat of Satan and his spiritual forces of evil and all pagan nations and every person who stands opposed to him. Sin and evil and wickedness and death are destroyed and cleansed from the earth. 
All believers in Christ are resurrected with glorious new bodies. God also resurrects the new earth and restores all aspects of it to his original sinless perfection. There's no more evidence of decay and death, no more evidence of frustration. God brings heaven with a new Jerusalem down to earth, a perfect earth united with a perfect heaven. It's to be the dwelling place of God and all believers and all heavenly angels. Redeemed humanity is restored to God's original place of reigning with him to rule and be stewards over all he has made, and it doesn't get any better than this. This is what is promised. This is what is guaranteed in Christ. This is what every believer in Christ has to look forward to. So let me ask, when you think of heaven, what comes to mind? What images do you see? I think one misconception people carry around is that heaven, it's another worldly experience, totally disconnected and different than anything we experience here in this life. We kind of picture disembodied spirits that float around and play harps all day. Or heaven is filled with wispy clouds. Or the floor of heaven is covered with a fog, you know, like a mega fog machine is just on 24-7. Everyone's wearing white. It's a soft, quiet, serene, sedate environment where everyone's serious all the time and always in quiet reflection. Heaven is one really long church service where all we do is sing praise songs 24-7. And, and listen, I love to worship with the best of them. But if it was actually praise songs 24-7, 30 days a month, 365 days a year, I think I'd start getting a little much. It can kind of sound monotonous and boring. And I think it's no wonder that many Christians don't seem all that interested in heaven. We think, even with all my troubles, life here sounds more interesting. So let me ask you a second question. If you were given the choice of going to heaven today or waiting 10 years, how many of you would choose to wait for 10 years? The thinking can be, I don't want Jesus to come back until I fall in love and get married or have and raise my own kids. I don't want him to come back until I see my kids graduate or get married and have their own kids. Or until we come back from that wonderful trip that we got planned to Hawaii or after we've been retired for enough years to be able to enjoy it. We don't know what heaven is like, but we're pretty sure it can't be better than falling in love or getting married or having kids or grandkids or going on that special vacation or enjoying our retirement years. We all have dreams of things we still want to do. And we still want the time to enjoy family and friends. And we want time to achieve and accomplish and experience new things here on earth. But Paul said it this way in Philippians 1, 21-23. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will remain fruitful labor for me, yet what will I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And you see what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that he's struggling with that very thing. He, he knows that maybe his life is going to be coming to an end soon before Caesar. And he says... I'm kind of torn, you know. I, I know that if I stay here, it'll mean fruitful labor for me, and, and I want to keep investing in you guys and in the churches and continue to help you guys grow in the faith. He says, for that reason, I'm torn. I, I kind of like to stay there for this, but he says, you know what? I desire to be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, there's no comparison. 
No matter how many good things we have in this life or how many good expectations or the things that we have planned that's ahead that we want to get to and achieve and, and accomplish, he's saying being home with Jesus is better than all of that. Our desire and wanting and longing and eager expectation for heaven, it's not to be based on our current circumstances, whether they're good or bad, but on our knowledge and belief of just how incomparably wonderful and fantastic heaven and being in the presence of God will be. So turn with your Bibles, turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21, and we want to read verses 1 through 4. And this is the vision that the Apostle John was given by the Lord of what the future, in part, is going to look like. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Everything that gets destroyed between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 because of sin and rebellion and disobedience and rejection of God gets restored when God brings a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, and a new earth together as one. I want you to see the connection between Revelation 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 and 2. The new heaven and the new earth are the restoration and redemption of every real place that God created in Genesis. Randy Elkhorn writes, In Genesis, God plants the Garden of Eden on earth. In Revelation, He, bring down, he brings down the new Jerusalem with a garden at its center to the new earth. In Eden, there is no sin, death, or curse. On the new earth, there is no more sin, death, and curse. In Genesis, the Redeemer is promised. In Revelation, the Redeemer returns. Genesis tells the story of a paradise lost. Revelation tells the story of paradise regained. In Genesis, humanity's stewardship is squandered. In Revelation, humanity's stewardship is triumphant, empowered by the human and divine King Jesus. He says these parallels are too remarkable to be anything but deliberate. These mirror images demonstrate the perfect symmetry of God's plan. In Ephesians 1, 10 and 11, it says, And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things together under one head, even Christ. This is where things are heading. This is where God's plan is heading. He's going to bring everything together under one head, Jesus Christ. This is the conclusion of God's story. This is the happily ever after ending that He planned from the beginning. It's an in-your-face Satan for believing in any moment that you could ever truly thwart God's glorious plans and purposes. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And Randy Elkhorn writes, The vandal doesn't get the satisfaction of destroying his rival's masterpiece. On the contrary, God makes an even greater masterpiece out of what his enemy sought to destroy. Isn't that glorious? 
at the things that we're experiencing in this earth and all the havoc and chaos and frustration that Satan tries to weave through our life as we experience it on this, we know that one day he will not have the victory. That Jesus will stand victorious and he will restore all things to his original intentions. So what's going to be incredible about eternal life in heaven? Well, the first thing that I think of, it's going to be a life without the consequences of sin. In Revelation 22.3, it says, no longer will there be any curse. If this was all that I knew about what heaven was going to be, I think that I could get my heart to well up and fill up with enough joy to just be excited about it. Think about it. A life forever with no more curse. I want you to think about the ways that the fall affects your life today. What do you struggle with the most? What do you dislike most in others? What are the ways that people have hurt you in your life experience? As it feels at times we're trudging through life, we forget just how much of life is negatively impacted by the curse. That all of our temptations and our troubles and our trials and our pain and our suffering and our loss is because this world is fallen. So I tried to think of as many things that I could of, of what would the world be without if we weren't under the curse anymore. Imagine a place where there is no rehab and recovery clinics, no need for medications, where there was no homeless shelters or orphanages or mental hospitals, no abortion clinics, no nursing homes for old people. There'll be no need for courts of law, meaning there will be no lawyers. A place where there are no tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, or hurricanes. No forest fires or droughts. There'll be no pollution or global warming or climate change to worry people. There'll be no prejudice, bigotry, sexism, racism, or injustice of any kind. No fighting and arguing. No wars or rumors of wars. There's no sin. There's no insecurity. There's no anxiety. There's no fears. There's no phobias. There's no mixed motives, no comparing, no hypocrisy, and no using of people. There's no child abuse, incest, or sex trafficking. There'll be no crime, burglary, rape, murder, no guns, no concerns about protecting ourselves or protecting our loved ones or even having to lock our doors. There'll be no rejection, abandonment, or ridicule. No divorce or broken families or church splits. No gossip, no slander, no envy, no betrayal, no bitterness, no anger or malice towards anyone. There'll be no sexual immorality or sexual addiction or abuse. There'll be no prostitution or pornography. No addictions to drugs or alcohol or food. There'll be no such thing as overdoses. No disease, decay or death. No poverty, no more crying, pain, suffering or loss. No more temptations or trials. It'll be a life forever without stress, pressure, weariness, or fatigue. What there won't be in heaven is enough to excite us all, isn't there? Man, to never have to worry about the curse ever again. But there's more. In heaven, you'll be a human being for all eternity who will be fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted. You'll be fully cherished, fully respected, fully appreciated, fully enjoyed by God and all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
There'll be no one who's outside looking in. There will be no rejection or ridicule, no exclusive groups or clubs or cliques. There'll be no one who's popular and unpopular in heaven. What an amazing way to live in relationships with one another. The next thing I thought of concerning heaven that we will actually get to live in the presence of God. Revelation 21.3 says, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. The Scriptures declare that God's glory fills His entire kingdom. There will be no place that you can go in His kingdom where His presence will not be manifest. Revelation 22.4 says that they will see His face. And to see God's face, it's the loftiest of all aspirations. To be told we'll see God's face, it's shocking to anyone who understands God's absolute transcendence and holiness. If you remember in ancient Israel, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where God resided. And tradition says that they actually tied a rope to his ankle so that in case he died while he was in there in his presence, they could pull him out because no one else dared to go in there. And the high priest was only allowed to go once a year. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God responded, you cannot see my face and live. So he hid Moses in a cleft of a rock and allowed Moses to see him as he passed by. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God lives in unapproachable light. To see God's face was unthinkable. And the obstacles to seeing, they they seem daunting because in Hebrews 12.14 it says, without holiness no one will see God. It's only because we'll be fully righteous in Christ, completely sinless, that we'll be able to see God and live in His presence for all eternity. God's glory will fill the entire heaven, not just one centralized place. Thus, wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence and full glory of God. Wherever we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of God's presence. Throughout all eternity, we'll never be separated from direct, unhindered fellowship with God. And it's then that we'll understand that God will be our greatest joy. The joy by which all others will be measured. It's only then that we'll fully understand that He is our greatest gift. He is our greatest prize. He is our greatest treasure. And we will marvel and stand for all eternity in awe of His majesty and His holiness, His power, His wisdom, His love, His grace, and mercy. I think David understood this when he wrote in Psalm 27.4, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Well, there's a third thing that I thought of that we may not think about much, but I think it's going to be pretty awesome as well, and that eternity is going to involve both city life and country life. And I thought of Revelation 21.16 where John describes the New Jerusalem. He says that it's 12,000 stadia squared, which I come to find out that that's 1,400 miles. He's saying that it's 1,400 miles wide, which would mean it'd be like traveling from New York City to Kansas City. It's 
12 or 1400 miles wide so that means it would be from like going from Canada the border of Canada to Canada of Mexico but there's another amazing thing that he says that it's 12,000 stadium high 1400 miles high now we don't know for sure that these are specific measurements that God wants to reveal to us but the one thing that we know for sure is John saying that this city the new Jerusalem is going to be immense it's going to be huge It'll be like no other city that you've ever seen. It'll have like no other architectural beauty that you've ever witnessed. It'll be a true masterpiece by the great architect. It reminded me of what it said in Hebrews 11.10 about Abraham, that the reason why Abraham so was so willingly and obediently willing to leave his homeland and go to a place that God didn't reveal because it says there that he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Eternity will be the coming together of a perfect heaven and a perfect earth. And it's described in various scriptures as a city and other places as a country. It will have mountains and valleys, rivers, and beautiful scenery everywhere. Animals will roam freely, no longer being part of anyone's food chain. Isaiah's prophecy foretells that the lion will lie down with the lamb and the child will play with the cobra. I believe there will be things like hiking and swimming and athletics for all eternity. And we know that city life has restaurants and entertainment and music and concert and sports. The the Bible speaks of banquets and feasts. I believe there will be a heavenly culture that everyone will enjoy and be a part of. It's going to be a place of adventure and exploration and amazing discoveries around every turn for all eternity. You know that when you've gone places and and like you've seen the majesty of the Grand Canyon and you, you look at it for the first time, you say, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. It's going to be like that in heaven every single day. Every time you turn your head, you're going to see something and say, wow, that's amazing. Did you see that? It's going to be a place where your gifts and your skills and your talents and your passions on earth will be absolutely refined and perfected. Musicians, singers, songwriters, architects, master craftsmen will have skills beyond their wildest imagination. And there will be absolute joy and fulfillment in your work and service of God. That's right, there's going to be work in heaven. But there will be none of this getting tired or weary or bored or being overworked, underpaid or underappreciated. It will be work that you enjoy, work that you'll be good at, work that you'll feel satisfied and fulfilled in. You'll have a great boss and fellow employees that are always a treat to be around. Can you imagine that? It will be work that will always glorify God. And finally this morning... The one thing that Paul promised, which is another part of the wonder of what we have to look forward to, is we're going to have glorious resurrected bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 44, it says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Chip Ingram says, think about it for a moment. The body you now have is perishable. 
When you go to a grocery store and buy a perishable item, it means it has an expiration date. It won't last forever. It has a certain shelf life. And so it caused me to think, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a Geico insurance commercial, and these two young, this young couple is living in their house, and there's several aunts of theirs that decide to have an extended stay at their house. And one of the aunts is standing at the refrigerator, and it's open wide, and she's picking out item after item saying, expired, expired, expired. These were the kind of ants they were. You know, they were kind of annoying and irritating. But with our heavenly glorified body, there's no expiration date. Never get old or diseased. It will be the ultimate upgrade. One day there'll be no more bulging middles or balding tops. No varicose veins or crow's feet. No more cellulite or support hose. Forget the thunder thighs and highway hips. No faulting eyesight or memory. No more knee or hip replacements. No pacemaker or heart valve. No rotor rooter on your arteries. No paralysis from injury or loss of limb due to war. A body that's no longer subject to disease, decay, or death. No more struggles with sickness and allergies. Never to be worried again about anything like COVID-19. For all eternity, a body that is distinctly you, recognizable you, and yet a body that is fit, trim, strong, and energetic. And for all of your family and friends who have gone before you, it's going to be the exact same for them. Can you imagine the great reunion that you are going to have all meeting one day in your glorious resurrected bodies? Philippians 3.21 says, Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you remember what Jesus' body was like after he rose from the dead? Take a look and read the, the four Gospels sometime and, and see what, what he was like. He spoke with and interacted with people. Those who knew him prior could recognize him. He ate with them. And remember the time when the disciples were fishing and, and Jesus is out there already on the shore and he's got a campfire going and he's cooking some fish and they come in to eat with him. That was after he rose from the dead. He had Thomas touch his hands inside. He, he had a real physical body. But now the really cool thing, which I would like to think would be true for us as well, is that you remember the time that Jesus actually walked through a wall when the disciples were meeting in the room and the door was locked? He could appear and, and disappear as he wanted upon a thought. He could be where he wanted to be. It seemed like there was no longer need that he had to walk different places. Now, I can't say for sure that the Scriptures say that that's what our bodies are going to be like. That could be part of His deity, that only He was able to do that. But I think it's pretty cool to think about, of the possibility. Another thing that we're going to have is new hearts. And I don't know about you, but there's times where I get sick and tired of battling my flesh, of fighting temptation. The times when it feels like my life is sin, confess, sin, confess. The failures it leads to guilt and shame. I, I know the frustration that the Apostle Paul felt when he said in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do, but instead I do what I hate. I have the desire to do good, but cannot carry it out. I keep doing what I don't want to do. What a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Can you relate to his words? Can you relate to those struggles? I think we all can. But can you imagine a life with fully sanctified thought life, emotions, and will? No longer battling temptation. No longer falling to sin. No longer experiencing the destructive consequences of sin. Hearts that are fully in love with Jesus. Fully devoted. Fully faithful. Hearts always overflowing with praise and thanksgiving. Overflowing with purity and joy and peace. That's what life will be for all eternity. I'm hoping that some of you are beginning to well up with a, with a holy anticipation and excitement about what God has prepared for us. To close this morning, I want to mention that we're also going to have a new mind. No evil, wicked thoughts. No critical, judgmental, negative thoughts. No longer rehearsing past hurts and pain or your past haunting you in some way. Nothing profane ever entering your mind. No thoughts of anger, hatred, or hostility or revenge. No lust or greed. No jealousy, envy, or coveting what others have. No more thoughts of being useless or worthless. No more self-loathing or feeling stupid or berating yourself or beating yourself up over something you did or said. No anxious or fearful thoughts. No more sleepless nights worrying about things. No more confusion or doubts. No more selfishness or always being preoccupied with yourself. No more thoughts of depression, despair, or hopelessness. For those whose minds are starting to slip with forgetfulness, confusion, or the ability to remember what you wanted to say. For those who are going through the painful ordeal of a loved one who's suffering with dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe it's a loved one who's been diagnosed with a mental illness or a child who has autism and whose mind is slow to develop or comprehend. You and everyone you love who knows Christ will be given a wonderful, new, clear, perfectly functioning mind. Isn't that amazing? To close this morning, I want to read just a brief story of Johnny Erickson Tata from her book on heaven. And it's an opportunity that she had to have with a, with a class and you know, I, uh, I have admired and respected Johnny Erickson Tata for a whole lot of years. I've never gotten a chance to meet her. She's the woman, if you don't know, who teenager um, was paralyzed from a diving accident as she was swimming in a lake with some high school friends. And when it first happened to her, she did not know Christ, and she actually uh, was very angry and bitter that God would allow something like this in her life. And there's friends who ministered to her and shared the gospel, and eventually she gave her life to Christ. And for over 50 years, paralyzed from her shoulders down, she has been one of the greatest, most faithful Christian women this world has ever seen. She, she paints these beautiful paintings with her mouth, with a, with a brush in her mouth, because she can't use her arms or her legs. She's written many wonderful books and conference speaker and seminar speaker who just goes around and shares of the love of Christ and, and gives her testimony of, of what God has meant to her. And so I just wanted to close by reading this story. She says, I encountered these friends in a Sunday school class not long ago where I shared my testimony. They were young adults with mental handicaps, some from Down syndrome, others with autism or various brain injuries. It was pretty tough getting their attention, 
A few were looking out the windows, others were drumming their fingers on their desks, and some were ambling around the back of the room. The teacher clapped her hands and directed the class attention my way. One or two of them leaned on their elbows and studied me in my wheelchair with casual curiosity. I caught their interest when I flailed my useless arms and told them that the guys that run Six Flags Mega Mountain wouldn't let me ride the giant water slide. They felt bad, some booed. Then I told them one day when I get my new body, I not only master the water slide, but also snow ski the cornice at Mammoth Mountain or run the New York Marathon if I wanted to. A few of them laughed when I told them I really didn't want to. It's going to be great having a new body. I smiled at the men and women who were now looking with intense interest. The guys in the back found their seats and the others quit throwing spitballs and drumming pencils on their desks. Everyone wanted to hear about heaven. They say that the gates of heaven are made from a single pearl, I said with wide eyes. Nah, a teenager with Down syndrome said in unison with a couple of his buddies. They giggled and covered their mouths. No pearl that big, they scoffed. Oh, yes, there is, I teased. And can you guess how big the oyster will be, the one who makes the pearl? By this time, half the class were spreading their arms wide, trying to size up how large an oyster was needed to produce a pearl the size of a gate. I had their attention. I challenged them to come up with other neat things I'd do with my new body. They thought it would be great for me to walk into McDonald's and stand in line. I'd be able to unwrap a Snickers bar. I could flush a toilet. That got more giggles. One girl wanted to know if I'd still have plastic arms in heaven. I looked at her a little funny, shoulder, because there's nothing plastic about my arms. But I grinned, shrugged my shoulders, and said wistfully, no more plastic in heaven, I'll have a real body, and I'll be able to do all kinds of things, even go swimming if I want. My comment drew a new level of empathy. One girl came up, patted my arm, and said, be careful next time, okay? Okay, I promised. The class wanted to talk more about heaven. They invented all sorts of wild and wonderful heavenly activities, riding giraffes, going on a picnic with Jesus, petting sharks, earning lots of money, shaking hands with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I reminded that that was only possible if Mr. Jabbar knew Jesus. It was then suggested that someone should pray for the L.A. Lakers. As their enthusiasm mounted, I finally blurted, Hey guys, I may have a new body, but one day you'll have a new mind. The entire class jumped to their feet and wildly applauded. Amidst whistles and cheers, I went on to say, You'll be able to think better than your teacher here, and you'll show your sister how to do homework, even the hard stuff like math and things. You'll think high-powered, supercharged thoughts and know just about everything there is to know. Your brain will burn rubber. Most of all, you and Jesus will be together and you'll have lots of things to talk about. By the time Sunday school was over, the class was well on their way to setting their hearts and minds on heavenly glories above. They were looking out the window to see if Jesus was coming back, clapping their hands and jumping up and down. I thought I had taught them a lesson about heaven, but they had taught me what it meant to have the mind of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And, and that's just part of just the simplicity of children grasping what it's going to mean and what God's going to do for them in Christ in heaven. He's coming back one day to redeem and restore all things to His original intentions. Let that well up in your hearts and minds and cause you to live life in such a way that you believe that, that you're holding on to that, that you're not setting your roots so deep in this world and holding and clenching to life in this world because you know that He's prepared something far better. 
and allow that to motivate you to live for him each day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us in Christ. And we thank you that even though the first man and woman completely blew it and completely rebelled and disobeyed and and sought a life apart from you, that you didn't turn your back, but you right away promised and made a way for us to be restored and redeemed back to you. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross and that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you that for every person who places their faith and trust in you, that we are guaranteed these precious promises. That we're citizens of heaven, that you've prepared a place for us there, that you're going to return and bring us to be where you are, and that you're going to clothe us with glorious new bodies, minds, and hearts, that we'll get to explore heaven and be with you for all eternity. What great and glorious thoughts from a great and glorious God. We give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesse's going to come up now and and lead us in uh, communion.